Well, good morning, East White Oak. Those are fun songs. It is good to, to stand and sing with you all today. I got to do that in the first sermon, and I got to do it again now. It just, I, I like those songs. Um, yeah. Hey, it is a real honor and a, and a great privilege to be able to be with you this morning. Uh, my name is Matt Kent. Uh, Scott gave a little uh, intro um, beforehand. I work for an organization called Crew. Um, I've worked with Crew for about 28 years, uh, about 20 of those being on campus ministry teams uh, here in Illinois, at Illinois State, and then in Germany for about 10 of those years. Um, four years ago, I stepped into a role of uh, overseeing uh, missionary care, uh, missionary development, and kind of overseeing the ministry culture of about 20 campus ministry teams in uh, six states. There, it, I, I live in Indianapolis, but I have to drive to all of these. Um, they're in Ohio, Pennsylvania, West Virginia, Kentucky, Tennessee, and North Carolina. And so I find myself on the road quite a bit. My wife, Michelle, and I live in Indianapolis. I work out of a crew office there. Uh, Michelle is here. We've been married for about 26 years. And uh, that's, she should get a badge for that. Um, but we have three sons. Uh, Quinn, Wes, and Jack. Quinn is uh, 24. He lives out in Oklahoma City and works for Boeing out there on a military base. Wes just got out of the Marines uh, in July and is up in Milwaukee uh, studying cybersecurity. Jack is out uh, in Nevada. He works uh, in the Air Force out there. And we have shifted from being a, a missionary family to a military family um, and have had to learn all the acronyms and all the phrases and the realities of what that means um, it's been quite the crash course, but, but we are indeed privileged to call many of you friends and to have East White Oak as a home for us, to have had that uh, since 1994. Um, much of what I do now in the area of missionary care, uh, I have experienced firsthand and learned from many of you and from the missions team here at East White Oak. I say thank you for what you've done to care for us, not just because of all that you've done which has been immense to care for us, but perhaps more because it reflects your heart and your character and your desire to make Jesus known. As I've been connecting with Ryan Andrus about the, and with the missions team about this missions conference, I've been really impressed with the theme, uh, which is really the desire to continue to make Jesus known, even though much of what we considered normal in the world and in missions even though, much, even though much of that has shifted in the last two years, uh, especially. And if I can be honest with you, which I think is what you want, um, but if I can be honest with you, making Jesus known is not easy. It is hard. Even in the best situation with someone who's listening and who's willing to consider the claims of Christ, you have an imperfect person trying to share eternal truths with someone who is perhaps probably distracted, and self-centered. You also have a, an enemy who is uh, unseen and working to manipulate and to deceive. And while the Holy Spirit is also at work in an unseen way, working to convict and regenerate the heart. Now, I'm not trying to overcomplicate what it means when I say that making Jesus known is hard. Our task is simply to take the initiative to share Jesus with others by faith in the power of the Spirit and to leave the results to God. Amen. That's what Jesus asks of us. 
But when you surround and layer this step with a global health crisis, significant social mistrust and division, and when you add in a few political undertones fueled with just enough anger and rage or, and fear to set us on edge, and if we amp up everyone's level of distraction with those little devices we keep in our pockets at all times of the day, well then yes, making Jesus known can be quite hard. This is something that the Apostle Paul was all too familiar with. Making Jesus known got him beaten, rejected, impoverished, and imprisoned. Just for starters. But that's why we're here today, right? Not the being beaten, rejected, impoverished, and imprisoned part, but the making Jesus known part. But we could even say that, that sorry, um, but we could even say that this missions conference is much less about missions and much more about who Jesus is. Because we know that without Jesus, missions is an empty endeavor. And yet with Jesus at the center, it's good and necessary good and necessary to talk about missions. Missions always needs to adapt. It needs our attention. It needs to change if it is to be effective and expansive. And that requires our asking questions about it, studying it, studying our world, knowing the many cultures we live in and interact with. It requires investing our time, resources, and people into missions. But in the end, missions happens because of who Jesus is. And I know that as a church, you started going through Philippians in, in the recent weeks. And that happens to also be a place where I've just been stuck for the past several months. I said in the first service, maybe you shouldn't say you, you're stuck in any part of the Bible. Um, but I just have, have not found it easy to get away from it. And so I'd like us to look to the letter of Philippians today uh, in our time. And there's so much there about missions. And right in the middle of this letter, Paul writes something that we desperately need at the start of this missions conference. And that's found in verses, in chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. And Paul writes this. He says, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. For this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father." Amen. Missions is about Jesus. And so as we start, would you pray with me here? Jesus, we just say thanks for the opportunity to assemble today, to take a look in your word, to ask you what you have for us. I pray that you would speak to us, that you would meet us each where we need you to, to speak. And Lord, I pray that these words would be something that you would use today to your pleasure. Thank you for your word and for what we can learn from it. Would you change us? We pray this in your name. Amen. Well, I've been asked to say something today about partnering with your missionaries. And then as I've given thought to what I would say today, I've prayed quite simply that I would be a blessing to you all and that somehow what I say would be used in the life of this church which is to say in each of your lives.
missions is not about missionaries. Missions conferences are not about missionaries or their organizations. Missions is about Jesus, and not one of us is exempted from the great commission that Jesus gives to us, to his followers. The words of Jesus in Matthew 28, to go and make disciples of all nations, were not given to his professionals, but to his followers. Not to a few, but to every. We each have a part in making Jesus known. Paul and the church in Philippi, they're such good models for us when it comes to missions. Their example of what it is for a local church to partner with missionaries is one that is very helpful today. And as with every proper sermon, I have three things to say about this topic. I'm going to go over these three things and then we'll, we'll come back to them here. First is that missions is not the realm of professionals. Rather, missionaries are extensions of the disciple-making, follower-of-Jesus efforts of the local church, and missionaries are full members of that local body. There's a relationship between the local church and the missionary that they send out. Secondly, missions is a shared corporate endeavor. It's not the work of an individual. Missionaries and those who send them are full participants in each other's lives and ministry experiences. And thirdly, the partnership of the missionary and the local church results in mutual edification and in God ultimately being glorified. So with that first point there, missions is not the realm of professionals. Rather, there is a partner relationship between the missionary and the local church. You know, there was something about that church, that body of Christ culture there in Philippi, something that, um, there was something unique about that. Uh, the church in Corinth seemed to never get away from a parent-child relationship with Paul, but the church in Philippi seemed to have a very different relationship with him. It seemed like they were a peer with Paul. They were a strong partner in his ministry. We see this kind of relationship through Paul's words and through his attitude throughout the letter. Paul wrote this letter about 10 years after he had visited Philippi. And if you have time this week to go through and read Acts 16, I encourage you to do so. You could even back up it towards the end of chapter 15 to when Bar Paul and Barnabas split uh, and see how that led Paul and Silas through some crazy situations to actually end up in Philippi. And then what happened in Philippi gives us a, a very good context for the letter that we read that he wrote 10 years later. But as we read the letter, it seems that Paul doesn't write specifically to correct anything or to teach anything. Now, there's a lot that he speaks to in the letter, but it seems like he's writing more to connect and to encourage the church in Philippi. He is thankful and appreciative. He longs to be with these people together again. In those 10 years since first writing or since visiting Philippi, Paul has been through Philippi, I think, at least twice more uh, on his travels. When Paul was traveling, the church in Philippi sent gifts to meet his financial needs. The, ch the church also participated in Paul's ministry efforts, often sending resources that Paul asked them to contribute towards. And as Paul writes this letter from prison because of his ministry efforts, he does so while a member of the church in Philippi Epaphroditus is with him. He was sent there to be a help and a partner to Paul for a period of time, and he sends the letter back to Philippi via Epaphroditus. Now, the way Paul opens up this letter tells us something about the relationship that Paul had with that church. In verses three through eight here, Paul says this. He says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, 
always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. For I'm confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. For it is only right for me to feel this way about you all, because I have you in my heart, since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers of grace with me. For God is my witness how I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Let me ask, how would you feel if you received a note saying those things? What an encouragement. First of all, Paul remembers these people. He prays for them and with joy. I pray for people, not always with joy uh, for some of the people I pray for. Paul is confident in them. He appreciates them. He longs to be with them again. I imagine each of us would be encouraged by such a note from a former mentor or a coach, a parent or a teacher. A few phrases in this little section of the letter stand out to me. First, and I'm going to condense it here, Paul says, I thank my God for you all in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. Paul seems to be saying here that there's been a partnership in making Jesus known from the very first day he met these people. The word participation, participation here is the Greek word koinonia. It's a significant word in the New, in the New Testament, found about 17 times. Um, Luke used it, Paul did, John, the writer of Hebrews. And if we try to capture what does koinonia mean, it's hard to have just one word to associate with it. Rather, we would use things like community, intimacy, fellowship, contribution, joint participation, all to try to capture that meaning. Koinonia is the same word that Paul used in Acts, or that Luke used in Acts 2.42 as the early church is, is described here where, they, where Luke says that they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship. So there was a togetherness of that early church that Koinonia described. In Romans 15.25 and 26, the term contribution is used. Paul says this, he says, but now I'm going to Jerusalem serving the saints for Macedonia, and we need to read Philippi, especially when we read the term Macedonia. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make a contribution for the poor of the saints in Jerusalem. So there's a participation in, there's a contribution that Koinonia represents. In 1 Corinthians 1.9, it says, God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with his son. And so Koinonia also describes our intimacy with Jesus. And then 2 Corinthians 8, 1 to 5, it talks again about that participation of the church in Philippi sending resources via Paul's hand to the poor in Jerusalem. And so this term koinonia talks about that relationship, that there is a, a full participation between the church in Philippi and what Paul is doing in ministry. And more than a partnership, Paul talks about a relationship that he has with those in Philippi and that he still has with them. Listen to these phrases here that he said in those verses we looked at. He says, it's only right for me to feel this way about you all because I have you in my heart. He goes on and says, for God is my witness, how I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Again, these are words of relationship and intimacy. They're very meaningful. He knows these people. He loves these people. And he wants that to hear them from him. In between these two phrases that Paul says, he uses another phrase, though, there, where he says this, 
both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you, are, you all are partakers of grace with me. Now, when Paul talks about his imprisonment or how he defends the gospel, how he proclaims the gospel clearly, he says here to the church in Philippi that you all are with me in these things. That term partaker can be translated as a joint partner. And when he mentions that they are joint partners of grace, he's referring back to Ephesians chapter 3, where he talks about how God gave him the gift of grace of the stewardship of the ministry of, of revealing the mystery of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles. He says, the stewardship that God gave me, you're a partner in that. So what Paul seems to be saying here is that when he thinks of and prays for the church in Philippi, he's thinking, them, thinking of them as full partners and full colleagues in the task of making Jesus known. He is not writing to a group of amateurs. That's not how he sees it, and that's not how the Philippians saw themselves either. Rather, they're peers with Paul. They're invested together in the Great Commission work. Michelle and I have felt this way about you all for many years. You've been so financially generous and consistent with us, but far more than just providing salary and living and ministry expenses, you've helped establish crew offices in downtown Normal. You helped build an English cafe in Freiburg, Germany. You helped us build out a ministry center in downtown Berlin. You've met unique, specific needs for our ministry, putting Bibles into the hands of freshmen on campus, or sending students to ministry retreats where they're built up in their faith and challenged to take the gospel to the world. You've sent people to visit us, to encourage us, and even to join us in ministry. When we were in Freiburg, Pastor Jeff, Eric, uh, Eric Smalley, and Matt Hughes came by and visited us on the way back on, on a return from their trip to Africa. In Berlin, you sent a team from the Oak to jump in with us in the ministry. They got on campus, they met students, they uh, talked to those students, they understood our context, and they prayed for God to work. Ben and Sue Walters, Jan Leiden, the Deals, we can't say enough about how you all literally built out that ministry center in Berlin, preparing an effective environment for ministry to students and others to happen and it is still happening. More recently, Ron Miller came and visited me in the, uh, in the crew office in Indy. It's just an office, nothing special about it, but he got to understand my context a little bit better and the ministry that we have together, of what that's like. Michelle and I were never the professional missionaries, and you all were the amateur helpers. Not at all. Rather, we worked together side by side, investing our time, our talent, and our treasure together in the same ministry. And you've done that for three decades alongside of us. And I know that this is not just our experience. I know that this is the experience of other missionaries that you send out here from the Oak. I've spoken to them. I know the stories. Ours is not a unique experience. I could say much more about this point and about our, and about our experiences with you all. But suffice it to say that missions is the realm of partners, not of professionals. Second, when we read this letter, we read that missions is a shared corporate endeavor. It's not the work of any one individual. Now, this might sound very familiar to that first point, that the local church and the missionary are partners and peers in the mission. We share a task in the Great Commission, and that means that we will experience 
similar things as we engage in missions together. Making Jesus known does not play favorites. Now let me point to what Jesus says in chapter 1, verses 12 through 14 here. Paul says this. He says, Now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel, so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else, and that most of the brethren, trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment, have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Oh, sorry, that's it. I thought there was another part to that. (laughs) There's so much in this little paragraph here. Um, And one of the things that stands out to me, though, is that little phrase, I want you to know. It is an odd little phrase. It is not necessary. And we need to ask, why did Paul intentionally say that? I think Paul is almost certainly referring to conversations that he had already had with this church and to commitments that they had made together in proclaiming the gospel. He wants them to know that what he is experiencing reflects the common commitment that they have made together. He's excited to tell them this because he knows it will encourage and excite them. Now, I work essentially in HR, and I I get many phone calls. Um, I often say to myself after a phone call, oh, that's a new one. I hadn't had that conversation before. That was fun. But I get these calls because nobody else wants responsibility for them. Maybe on a student retreat, a crew staff member gets injured and never goes to the hospital until much later when the problem is much worse. And so I'll call and say, well, why didn't you go to the hospital? And they might say, well, Jim told me just to deal with it. Nobody wants to be Jim. And so they call me. (laughs) So I can imagine a lot of situations Um, But to date, I've never gotten the call that one of our staff members has been arrested. And that's good, right? I don't want to get that phone call. I've also never gotten a phone call where one of our staff members has been put in jail. And that's good. I don't want to get that phone call either. But I really hope I don't get the phone call that a crew staff member has been wrongly convicted and put in federal prison. But if I should get that call one day, And if I hear the voice on the other end of the phone saying, Matt, I want you to know that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. And then if I were to have that same level of excitement in hearing that, you can see that we're way beyond small ministry goals. And I'm not trying to diminish small ministry goals. We need those things to happen. But Paul's words here make no sense unless there was a shared commitment to the progress of the gospel. There had been many previous conversations that Paul had had about that with the church in Philippi. This is Paul sharing about his experiences and how they are fulfilling those commitments. But he goes on here in verses 27 through 30, and he says this, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel, in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me, and now here to be in me. First of all, when we read the letter of Philippians, we need to substitute you all, for any time he says you. 
Paul rarely speaks to individuals in this letter. Rather, he speaks to a corporate group. Secondly, what Paul is saying here is that making Jesus known is not just his job that he does on his own. It's not an individual experience. But Paul is describing how his experiences are those he shares with those in Philippi. The church in Philippi didn't think, oh, poor Paul, he's been put in prison. As soon as he gets out, we need to get him away from there and bring him back to Philippi where it's safe here, where we don't have to go through that kind of stuff. No, this is a church that sent Epaphroditus, one of their own, to be in prison with Paul, to minister to him, to minister with him uh, to the guards and the prisoners. They also knew that making Jesus known could get them thrown in prison. Paul says to every member of the church, to you also it has been granted, not just to believe, but also to suffer for Christ's sake. He says to those in Philippi that they can expect to experience the same conflict and friction in making Jesus known that they see him experiencing in making Jesus known. Another place I've been stuck for the past several months has been in John 17. It came out of a desire to understand how do we actually in the body of Christ experience a sense of unity. But as I read through that chapter time and time and time again, there were some key phrases that just stood out and began to really get my attention. And one of those phrases is where Jesus says that we are not of the world, even as he is not of the world. Now, I don't know how you think about Jesus, but when I think about him and how he is not of the world, I don't think of my experience being similar to that. I look at who he is, I look at who I am, I look at what he experienced, I look at what I experienced, and I think we are worlds apart. But that's not what Jesus says about us. Jesus doesn't say, he doesn't say, I'm not of the world in one way. And then you've got these missionaries, and they're not of the world in a different way. Not quite like me, but they're also not of the world. And then you've got this other group of people that are just kind of the ordinary folks that go to church, they're my faithful followers, but they're not of the world not like the missionaries not of the world and not like I'm not of the, world, of the world. He doesn't say that at all. There's no distinction. They are not of the world. Us, even as I am not of the world. Him. Our common identity is found in Christ to such a degree that Jesus says we are not of the world just as he is. But then he goes on. In Matthew chapter 10, we read this. A disciple is not above his teacher nor is a slave above his master. It's enough for the disciple to be like his teacher, and the slave like his master. If they've called the head of the household Beelzebul, how much more will they malign the members of that household? And what Jesus seems to be saying here is that just as our common identity is found in him to such a degree that he would say, they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world, here he says that there is a common experience among his followers in this world that what he experienced, we also will experience. And going back to Paul and the Philippians, I think this is what Paul is trying to express here, especially in verses 29 and 30 of chapter 1, where he says that his experiences are not his alone. That as he sits in prison, as he defends the gospel, as he proclaims the gospel, he does so in partnership, in a shared corporate endeavor with the church in Philippi. There is not an individual missionary experience and then a a separate local church missions experience. These come out of shared commitments to the progress of the gospel. Again, this has been our experience with East White Oak. There have been several times when I've 
made a phone call to someone here from the church or to the missions team, and I've said, we're experiencing these challenges. Maybe they're with a team member, maybe with our team, maybe with a, the culture that we were trying to minister in or the, a ministry situation there. But as I've shared these things, I've heard on the other end of the phone, yeah, we go through that same exact stuff. We understand exactly what you're going through. Different context, a different degree of, uh, of situation, but the same situations. And it has been such a help to me to be able to process with somebody on the other end of the phone that I'm not alone in my experiences. My challenges have been your challenges. Our success has been your success. Because missions is a shared corporate endeavor. It is not the work of an individual. Lastly, the partnership of the missionary and the local church results in mutual edification and ultimately in God being glorified. Now, we're not gonna exhaust everything that's in missions in this letter of the Philippians. Uh, there's no way to do that. But I do wanna point as to how Paul ends this letter with this church. Now, remember his context. He's writing from prison. He's, he's not writing to correct anything specific or to teach anything specific, but to connect and encourage and to give an update to the church back in Philippi. And when Epaphroditus came to Paul, he, mo he most certainly brought some resources, be they uh, food, financial, um, or whatever. But this kind of help from Philippi was not out of the ordinary. They did this often. And so as we read verses 10 to 20 here in chapter 4, Paul says two things. The first thing is here, in uh, chapter 10. He says, but I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak from want, for I've learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I know also how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstances, I've learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Nevertheless, you have done well to share with me in my affliction. Now, when I've read that, and I've read it several times, there's this temptation I have to think that this is kind of a backhanded compliment of Paul to the church in Philippi. Almost as though he's saying, oh, folks, thanks for sending that financial gift. It is really so nice. You know, even though I've already figured out how to be quite content in any situation, even when you don't send me any money. And you know, I've got everything I need anyways through Jesus, but thanks for the gift. This is so far from what Paul is saying though. He's actually given them an incredibly strong compliment. He seems to be saying this, that being a traveling missionary has given him unique opportunities to grow and depend on the Lord for everything that he needs. At times he has abundance, at, at other times he's in need. But in all these situations, he's learned how to really depend on the Lord. When he says you lacked opportunity, I don't think he's saying, you know that one time I needed it? Yeah, you didn't come through on that one time. Not at all. I think what he's saying is that he's not the easiest person to find. He doesn't send out a travel itinerary to those churches. He doesn't know where he's gonna be week in and week out or what the day will bring. He's often at the mercy of rioting town folk or crowds of friends who suddenly need to whisk him away to safety. At, at other times, his plans are blocked by the Spirit or suddenly changed by circumstances, like a shipwreck. Enemies pursue him with stones, with chains, and with legal proceedings. 
And so being in prison has actually made Paul quite accessible to the church in Philippi. How's, how about that? But this dependence on the Lord through the goodwill and generosity of others has not hardened Paul's heart. He's not bitter towards those partners who haven't given recently and kind to those he has. Both of these have caused him to grow deeply dependent on the Lord for everything and also deeply appreciative of those in Philippi. And I think I can speak for missionaries when that's that's been our experience here as well. I don't know if I can say yet that I'm well content in times of great need, um, but I have experienced through your generosity and partnership a unique opportunity to really grow and depend on the Lord. Your partnership with us has grown my heart significantly in learning how to trust God. I know that God has given you all to us as a partner to teach me how to depend upon him. But then Paul goes on here in verse 15 and says this. You yourselves also know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel, after I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the, giving, in the matter of giving and receiving, but you alone. For even in Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once for my needs. Not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek for the profit which increases to your account. But I have received everything in full and have an abundance. I am amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. And my God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Now to God, now to our God and Father be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul speaks here of the idea that the giver is never made poor by the gift, but is rather made quite rich. He doesn't elaborate about what kind of account we have, nor as to what the increased profit that is deposited into our account is. But Paul does say this, and my God will supply all your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Paul says about his experience that the church in Philippi providing for his needs has caused him to grow deeply dependent on the Lord. And then he says here that the experience of the church in Philippi providing for his needs has caused the church to grow deeply dependent on the Lord as well. Their partnership in making Jesus known has brought about a mutual edification and a growth in depending on the Lord. He says that this shared partnership brings him to a place where God supplies all the strength that he needs and that this shared partnership with God supplies all that the church in Philippi needs. After saying these two things, which are really the same things, he says this, now to our God and Father be the glory forever and ever. Amen. The partnership of the missionary and the local church results in mutual deepening dependence upon the Lord and ultimately in God being glorified. Now there's a broad theme to this conference of laying aside every weight. And as I thought about that phrase, lay aside every weight, I'm trying to figure out what does that mean in the context of partnering with your missionaries? At the beginning of this morning, or at the beginning of this sermon, I said that making Jesus known is hard. And while there certainly are very real challenges and very real costs in missions, I don't want us to walk out of here with that as our thought, that making Jesus known is hard. Quite often what can make missions hard, and I know this from personal experience, it can be the things that I add to it, that God never intended for me to add to it. This is quite easy to do, and I'd like to mention a few things that we can lay aside. 
to get out from under that weight. We often make missions the realm of professional missionaries and of pastors, and we think, I can't do that. I can't be that person. And then we list out this myriad of reasons that weigh us down and keep us where we are. No, there is no professional missionary class. We are all partners in missions. Lay that weight aside. Missions is the realm of ordinary people who take even the smallest step of faith to make Jesus known. In making Jesus known, we can also assume the responsibilities of having all the right words to say, the perfect answers, the perfect strategies, and only making the most ideal segues in the gospel conversations. We tend to rely only on ourselves, on the abilities and talents that we feel we have, and not on our brothers and sisters around us. We tend to make missions an individual task, and to us, myself included, I say, we need to lay that weight aside. Missions is the realm of ordinary people who together take the smallest step of faith to make Jesus known and who do so in God's power and not their own. And lastly, we often think that our efforts and missions must produce these incredible nation-changing, dramatic, revival-producing results. And amen, may the Lord do that through our mission's efforts. But we must be content with God working in us and with the reality that he decides what mission's success will look like. We need to lay aside the weight of these expectations because missions is the realm of ordinary people who together, taking steps of faith to make Jesus known, experience a deepening dependence on God as he supplies all they need. East White Oak, God is using you in incredible ways all around the world. Thank you for being such strong partners in that mission. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for these folks here. Lord, thanks for the, the history of this church and missions and all that they have done. Lord, rather than leaning on that history and, and assuming that that will always be the case, Lord, I pray that this church would excel still more in missions, that you would give them new ways of investing of going, of giving, of praying. Jesus, one day every knee will bow. One day every tongue will confess that you are Lord. Jesus, thanks for involving us in your great commission. We love you. We pray this to your glory and in your name. Amen.